0: My name's Kelly Wells. Welcome to Man Marking, where we're asking, where's the talking lads?
1: You only to get into, out the game what you put into it, Shirley.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I put everything into it I could, and still do, for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them, out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered.
0: Do you yes. regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I, gre- oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's
1: a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that.
2: Hello and welcome to Man Marking, episode 27. And today we're talking to Kelly Wells.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm Kelly Wells. I'm a writer. Uh, I've worked for several outlets, including Kiquette. Uh, Football Ramble. I did my. Uh, uh, I've been doing a lot of freelancing for the last five years, uh, writing for the New Statesman Prospect, unusual efforts about mental health and about football. And over the last few months, I've been finishing a book, which is why I haven't been doing much out there.
2: As is the usual custom, I am joined by Ryan and Anthony. Anthony, how are we, my friend? I'm good. Why are you saying my name like that? i don't know i just wanted to say anthony so i just went with it how are we mate i'm good mate yeah
1: really good uh had a nice week played a bit of football did get hit
2: with a ball in the unmentionables uh, over the night it was good fun Fun. fantastic fantastic and ryan same to you my friend
3: yeah really good mate I had a, a big miller and carter last night which i still feel like i'm digesting about 16 hours later but uh yeah all good in the hood
2: do you want to talk us through what you went for,
3: what your aim <clears throat> your choice was? Well, I'm pretty sure they normally do a 12 ounce ribeye, and um, there was only 10 ounce, or no, there was only eight ounce or 16. And I went a ribeye, and I thought, I'm not eating eight ounce. That's that's too small. And then they had a 12 ounce one, but it was grain fed. And you know, I'm fussy on on meat food, and I like proper grass fed. So I was like, that that can't happen. Can't have the grain fed one <laughs> for whatever weird reason. Got to have the 16 ounce so i did it and then i was kind of like powering through and i thought yeah yeah got through it that's all right and then it just kind of hit me when i got home i was just sat there um because it comes with like chunky chips as well and you have beef dripping sauce i had to eat all the chips and we we put a film on and i was just sat there like i can't move here physically can't move
1: had to eat
2: all the chips yeah had to (laughs) yeah (laughs) um n- next time ryan if you are struggling with the 16 ounce just give me a little ring i'll, I'll pop up and i'll happily share a table with you and little napkin tucked in and we'll 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 sort that baby out
3: yeah i think we'll go for one of those like tomahawks where you with us the
2: bone through the middle and you share oh sharing. yeah that's great that yeah. i had one of them a while ago and then took some of it to work the next day it was absolutely superb um right enough of this chat uh We're obviously back on the hangout today due to isolation vibes, unfortunately. But still here all the same, discussing Kelly Wells. Before we get to that, we've got an opening question. This weekend saw a number of uh, derbies on the football fixture list. We had the Mayside derby. We had Brighton versus Palace. We had the Old Firm and Spurs versus West Ham. So... We're not going to do the obvious and ask what our favourite derby is or anything like that. What we're going to do is say, what are our least favourite derbies? What's the worst derby? And Anthony, I'm going to come to you first. Oh dear. Um,
1: least favourite derby. So not like in terms of like results and stuff, just how you feel about it. A gut feel about it.
2: Yeah, that's the one. Or one that you think, that isn't a derby. Do you know what I mean?
1: Well, that- that Brighton Palace one's not a derby. I'm not having that. Um, miles away from each other there's a mo- the big motorway in between them. Um, I don't know. Out of that list, I'm, I'm saying that's probably my least favourite. Uh, two teams which I'm going to apologise to both sets of fans and don't really have much interest in. Other than Roy Hodgson being at um, a Palace, there's, it's not really that, that exciting, is it? I mean, Hodgson's go for a, a little like oh there's like a granddad managing a football team oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm really glad that the episode that we've got coming out on friday uh the flat caps episode is a crystal palace one so that's good you've just <laughs> slammed <laughs> the that. big the biggest day in the in the in the fixture list
1: look it's not my fault it's theirs let, let's let's be honest. Yeah, pick, uh, I suppose yeah, so, Crystal
2: Palace would probably see Charlton as their as their proper derby, wouldn't they? South London. Yeah, I, I, I think so.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, sure. yeah. Uh, another derby, maybe. Uh, we're looking at. I don't know. I think I can't really think of them now. I, I didn't really like when. It depends what you call in the derby or whether it's like a rival. I, I didn't really enjoy when we used to go and play Oldham. that, that wasn't good. But I don't know whether it would be a derby.
2: I suppose we were clinging on to the fact that we didn't have anyone anywhere near us. So we had yeah. to pick somebody. Yeah, so we encompassed the whole Northwest. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have all of them. Everyone's a derby. Ryan, same question to you.
3: Yeah, for, for similar reasons uh, to Ants, I'm going to go with Ipswich Norwich. And the reason being, it actually feels like a big derby. It's always on Sky, they, they hate each other. Um, and you would assume they were like five miles away. I did a little Google this morning. There's 45 miles between Ipswich and Norwich. And you know what it strikes me as? Do you know when a cat sees another cat and it just kicks off? (laughs) Because it's not used to seeing another. It's like because no one's near Ipswich or Norwich. It's like, who are you? Oh, yeah, I'm wearing a football club for 45 miles away. How dare you be a football club near
2: us? It's like like Norwich of walked into Ipswich's backyard unannounced. Yeah,
3: and they're doing that thing where he made that horrible noise in the back's up and I'm thinking I I, I grew up thinking they were about ten miles apart. Forty five miles take you four hours yeah, on man. a bike apparently on Google Maps. <laughs> any any derby that's four miles on a bike isn't a derby.
2: So I am um, I was also looking at that one because 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 that I mean that is a proper rivalry in terms of the fact that they they, they do genuinely very much dislike each other. But I always feel like when I watch it, it's nil nil. And I don't know if yeah, it's because it switches been managed by Mick McCarthy. One of, for a them's
3: while. Good. one of them's good, and the other's like going for promotion. Sorry, one of them's going for relegation, the other's
2: going for promotion. They're never like both going for promotion at the well, same they, time. Well, they they played in the playoffs against each other, didn't they, a few years back? Okay, um, I take that statement there. But I, I read, because I was thinking about that one as well, and I read on online Keith Hackett, former referee. Said that the derby that he refereed that had the most the, f- the most fierce atmosphere was the uh, the East Anglian derby. He said That's it was... what I mean.
3: It does always feel like a derby. Like, and I obviously still follow James Norbert on Twitter, and you used to end up having Norwich and Ipswich stuff on your timeline just because he plays for Ipswich. And even when they were two divisions apart, like they were still baiting each other constantly. And I was like, yeah, but the, as I suppose. I suppose if it's played like a derby, then it, it' fair enough, but it's just a bit mad, isn't it? I suppose is probably just as close to Cambridge, but I don't think
2: they ever play each other. No, no, very true. Uh, the derby I went for, I didn't even realise was a derby until I started Googling it, and then I decided that it was the worst derby, just after reading it. I don't know if either of you have ever heard of this derby, the M4 derby, which is a crap name for a derby to start with. <laughs> is that um, Ox- Oxford? No, it's Reading versus Swindon Town. Oh,
3: Can
1: okay.
2: you think of a less appetising derby than that?
3: Yeah, the M56 derby.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, the last time Reading and Swindon played each other was 2002, and it was a nil nil draw. Oh, tasty, that. And, uh, and the last time Reading won, actually, was in 2001, via a Jamie Cureton goal. Of course it was, yeah. Of course, it was <laughs> old was Jamie Badsman. There was a goal scored, it may well have been Jamie and Just assume it was until told otherwise. <laughs> um, so moving on to today's interview, we've got Kelly Wells. And do you want to tell the listeners maybe you don't know who Kelly is a little bit of a background as to why we wanted to speak to her? Uh,
1: yeah. So, obviously, me and you first heard of Kelly Wells uh, when she was doing some work for the Football Ramble, uh, doing some articles for them. Um, and we wanted to speak to her uh, basically because she'd done a lot of articles around the subject of mental health uh, she obviously had a book uh, as well which is, has come out called The F- the Fear and we were very interested to, to see what she had to say and obviously you guys interviewed her I wasn't, wasn't with you that day and uh, there was a bit of a relationship formed and, and she's she's come along and, and done some articles for, our, for ourselves as well which we're very, very grateful for and they're very funny and very you know witty as well and, and very interesting you know around the topics of of mental health and 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 fans uh, in football as well so it's um that was kind of where that that interview idea came from and it was uh, I listened to it the other day and it was it was really interesting
2: we've had some really great people on and Kelly was one of them she's so like insightful about both her own mental health and also the kind of impact of sort of outside influences on mental health as well so it, it, it was a great interview ryan we always have a theme do you want to tell the listeners today what our theme is
3: yeah of course so today's theme is making the intangible tangible the therapy of articulating your thoughts
2: My... superb easy easy for you to say
3: i was just about to say i was so close to
2: thinking, do that again <laughs> I think you did a, stay, a Raheem staling job on that one, right?
3: Hey, that is um, respect see to theme, mate. Well done for coming
2: up with that. Thank you very much. It was a, uh, you know, it just came to me on a, on a whim. You know, a, the the <laughs> the, the mind palace was was full of thoughts, and then you know that's what drifted out. They do say ideas
1: are just a whim away? A whim away? A whim away?
2: Right, we're going to have to get on with Kelly's interview. Uh, we're going to leave you Kelly with Kelly.
3: That's the best thing Pob's ever said on this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's seven months in, and Pob's uh, really found a niche. Yeah. <laughs> right, we're going to leave you with Kelly's interview. You're listening to Man Marking, and we will see you on the other side. So you you were you were talking there Kelly about your the stuff that you you kind of tend to write about and mm-hmm. talking openly about subjects such as anxiety and depression and and kind of mental health in general. And as I was saying before, I you know I've been reading through um, a lot of your your posts and stuff in, in preparation for this conversation. And what I think would be really interesting for people is for anyone who's not ever gone through anxiety and depression before. What does that kind of feel like from a, a first person perspective?
0: As I've spent quite a lot of time writing about it over the years, I've found that using analogies is is quite helpful. And one of the analogies I keep coming back to is about being insulated from the world. I there's a it's almost like a photocopied quality to the world. You can see everything, everything's tangible, but you it can't give you any warmth. You Have close relationships with people, but it—you don't feel anything inside, except perhaps fear, or just being insulated. You—you want to be part of it so much, but there is some intangible that cannot—that you cannot get through.
2: Do you know? Do you ever? Do you ever have that thing where if you're on—and I I always—I it's probably just going to be me this, but you know when you're on holiday and you jump in the pool, and it's like the end of the day and pretty much the whole pool area is cleared. And you kind of just go under the water and sort of just float there a little bit.
0: Yeah.
2: And I always have that thing of, it feels like that's, that's kind of what it's like in that you'd sort of there, but you, but it's almost, you can't really hear anything or see anything or touch anything, but you kind of just floating around almost existing whilst everything's going on around you.
0: Yeah, it's very much the same sort of energy that, you know, because you're looking at and you can see things, but everything's really distorted. And I I like to use that analogy as well. You know, when when you suffer from depression or anxiety, because, I mean, they're quite in the same ballpark or they have been for me, you you can't rely on yourself. You know, your moods fluctuate, your emotions are incredibly intense, and you can't, you're not reliable, which i always it was made it quite stigmatic for me and i i don't know i I like the idea of of, of there being a filter mental health you either have a filter over the world or you don't Mm. Uh, it can make the way that you treat other people quite negative it can certainly make the way that you treat yourself quite negative and if you can remove that filter and i do think you can you can find something back in the world but it takes such a long it's such a long road to get back from from being ill and there are so many setbacks that you can find within that it doesn't surprise me at all that people struggle with mental health for their entire lives
2: yeah i think that's i think that's that that that, that's really interesting Um, i i kind of had this whole thing where i i when i i think i realized that i i kind of had anxiety and that sort of thing when i was in my sort of early 20s and it kind of took me back to when I was a teenager, and and then things started to make a little bit more sense in terms of feelings and behaviours and that sort of thing. Do you remember when you became aware that you had uh, anxiety, depression, or you know, whatever it is the, the 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 label that you want to put on it? But what was? Do you ever remember becoming aware of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I became intensely aware of it, like like somebody flicked a switch when I was thirteen or fourteen, and. Back then, it wasn't really an issue that anyone talked about. It wasn't something that you could go to a teacher about without feeling as though they would look at you and say, well, what do you want me to do? You know, you have to pull yourself together. And I I grew up in that sort of household as well, where, you know, you, you did pull yourself together and you had to just grit your teeth and get on with it. So you learn that that's what you have to do. So I carried on doing that you know sort of throughout my teens experiencing these incredible mood swings and that eventually led me to self-harming because it works I'm afraid to say in that moment and in that time for me it helped relieve the intensity of my emotions but that sort of prompts people into action you know um I ended up going to the doctors. My parents took me to the doctors after I started self-harming and I they put me on antidepressants, which I've got various different different sort of experiences and opinions on. But yeah, it was it was it was really it really shocked me because I was fine all my life and then all of a sudden I wasn't. Mm.
2: With reference to your self-harm that you talked about there, Kelly, was were mm. they was that like a release thing or was that Moving towards suicidal thoughts, or was it kind of just some way of relieving
0: the tension almost? It was a tension reliever for me. I've, I've, when because self-harming still got quite a lot of stigma attached to it. I've, I've written quite a lot about it because I want people to understand that it's not as scary as it looks, mm. which sounds counterintuitive, but it really does work. It's quite effective in tension relief. Because it does feel as though you're letting something out, as if you're showing, like I am hurting, and now you can see I'm hurting. It's not necessarily for anyone else, but for yourself. Mm. And it, it does have this effect on people where they panic and they they're not really sure what to what to do about it, so they ignore it. And I would, if if I could do anything, I'd like people to be able to engage with it because it's just another manifestation of depression really and it's it's somebody asking like i need help i don't really know how to ask for help this is the best way i know and perhaps you could you could help me rather than sort of admonishing me for it or telling me to stop doing it or i don't know I, there are a lot of attitudes towards it that i don't feel are very very constructive
2: yeah i think that's it's interesting that i've in in you know all i've never really thought about Self-harm in that way, I suppose. I I I I've I know people who've who've who self-harmed some who still do, and it's never been anything that I'd ever judge anybody for, but I've never really thought about it in terms of it's almost like um when we interviewed Neville Southall, he was talking about how when people have panic attacks, he said, like the instant thing that you want to do is stop them having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And he said, Why don't we just say, Okay, well, you're having a panic attack, this is what it's like yeah let it almost let it happen and learn to deal with it as it happens rather than trying to stop it so i wonder if it's it kind of falls under the same sort of thing doesn't it i suppose
0: i i think it's it's pretty much exactly the same thing but i think it all that also stands for mental health as a whole because in general we prefer or historically we've always preferred to hide it and pretend it's not happening like if somebody sees that you're mentally unwell, we have a tendency to walk away, you know, somebody unhinged on the corner or or, or whatever. But I feel like the real stigma that's attached to it needs to be broken so you can embrace it. Nobody knows what to do when somebody says to them, like when their child says to them, mum, I'm cutting myself, or dad, I, I have these feelings. And I think we panic at the idea that that might happen. And if we don't look, then it's not real. But it's not as bad as all that it, it really isn't if you yeah. look and you confront it it's much easier to deal with than you think and it would mean so it means so much when somebody looks you in the eye and says i don't really understand why you're doing this but i'm here for you and you can try and tell me if if you want to or not but i'm here for you
2: and um, you said they it almost felt like a switch was flicked when you were a, when you were a teenager yeah. how did the feelings of of anxiety what what were they what was do you know what caused it or was what was it that drove it
0: i've i've done a lot of thinking about it since and it does feel almost hormonal you know there was there was a whole sort of around that age you start going to secondary school and like the world opens up and i mean my problem was or my issue was the intensity of the emotions that I was feeling about everything, whether good and bad, were just too strong for me to be able to deal with. I didn't, I didn't understand how it was possible to feel these things and not explode or not die. Or just, okay. you, know, you know, even like it. It sounds trite, but just listening to a record, you know, you you listen to a piece of music. I don't know if you guys feel this as well, but you listen to a record and it just. Oh my god! Or oh, when yeah. somebody scores a goal in the cup final, or, or anything like that. But I was feeling that about everything, you know. If something bad happened to me, I got a bad grade, then it was the end of the world. If something great happened, I'd be high as a kite, and I just rode it because I didn't really, I didn't really understand, understand the difference. But that's what it was. I was always a, a really happy kid, ironically, but then I, it just became too much.
2: And is that? changed as you've gotten older in terms of the way that you felt about those strong emotions obviously as you say if those type of things were sort of hormonal how has that changed as you as you become an adult
0: yeah I mean I still as I I was saying I'll just start that again but I still do experience incredibly intense emotions but my coping mechanisms are a lot better I can you know I know when to expect them I can see the signs when they're coming and sort of take action to make sure that I don't get swept away with it. And also, I found the outlet of writing, which I tend to channel a lot of my emotions into anyway, which makes me a bit more balanced generally, I think.
2: And at the time you said you, your parents um, took you to the, the doctors and you were, you were put on antidepressants. Did you feel comfortable opening up and talking about it to people at that time? Or was it something you were maybe embarrassed of or shameful of or weren't really oh. your approach?
0: I was really ashamed. I mean, i I think isolation, isolation and shame play a, play a big part in it. But I didn't know anyone else that felt the way I did about anything, so it felt a bit shameful and it was making me do these things that seemed to disturb everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I was mortified at going to the doctor, just, and you know now I think people people are more kind, but it was, it was sort of like it was around. Um, it was in the late 90s, I think, when this was happening. And um, I don't know if you remember, you're probably a bit young. But <laughs> you remember Rich just about. Manic. Yeah, just about. But Richie Manick from the Manick Street Preachers cut his arm up um, at an interview with Steve Lemack, I think it was. And they published the pictures of it in the NME at the time. And it became very sort of passe thing to do, oddly. You know, oh, you've cut your arm up because you want to be like, humanic, and stuff it was it was just like oh great one minute i found this way to express myself quietly where it, i can just take the edge off it for a bit and now people think i'm doing it because i want to be like a rock star and it it just felt like the seventh circle of hell quite
2: honestly
0: <laughs> <laughs> you've got to laugh
2: and you you obviously speak about your your experiences and your feelings about mental health and stuff quite openly and in, in, in your writing did you, do you remember making a conscious decision to do that, or was that something that sort of just came naturally?
0: I did make a conscious decision because I decided to put it all away. Um, I was carrying it around with me for a long time in a certain period of my life, and it was weighing me down. I didn't really know what to do with it anymore, so I decided to write it down um, in, a, in a sort of fictional format just to, just to see what happened, and it was incredibly cathartic so I yeah I mean I, I kind of dealt with it that way and I have put it all in there and I feel I feel like I've closed a lid on that I don't think I'll ever be better but I can move forward from that particular section of my life
2: and what was the or what is the sort of reaction the response that you you get when you write about those things or has it changed since you you first started doing it
0: it's generally been the kind of reaction that I was hoping for because the reason the reason I really wanted to do it, I didn't want people to feel like they're alone and to feel the shame and isolation that I did that I mentioned previously about going to the doctor because it's such a such a waste of energy all of this. you know there's so much creative and emotional energy going around and I didn't want people to sit there thinking I'm the only person who is like this. you know so there is something wrong with me because um, that's how i felt for most of the time i just channeled it into well you know obviously you're tainted you're a freak you're a bit weird you don't fit in and you know since i've started talking about it the most astonishing thing to me is the amount of people who contact me and say oh you know i read your piece thanks for writing it i felt that but i haven't been able to talk about it and afterwards i've seen them talking more openly about mental health which has made me sort of think this is this is like a a winning formula you know if if you the more open you are the more willing people are to look into themselves and perhaps be more honest about what they're experiencing because i think in one way or another we all experience mental health problems Mm,
2: absolutely I, i i i agree it's 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 like that um it's like that effect isn't it of as soon as you start to talk about things and it encourages somebody else to start talking about things and it all just flows from there really And i think that's that's the point that everybody needs to try and get to, to, to realize and and and, and be open that, or even not just have to speak, but but feel like if they wanted to, that the people will listen or will at least acknowledge that people are feeling that way. Because as much as anything else, it's very cathartic just to talk about stuff yeah. and get it off your chest. And so you're not internalizing it. Then and as soon as you externalize it, it feels a lot different than it does when it's whirling around in your own brain.
0: A lot of people say that, but it's actually really, really hard to imagine if you haven't done it, isn't it? You know, I mean, obviously, with what you guys are doing with the podcast, you're putting it out there and and you you're putting yourself up as saying, yeah, I've had these problems. And once you've done that, and you, you just you just get a sense like, God, this is like the dam breaking, you know. And it doesn't take that much effort. You just have to go. Do you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be honest. And people people are so happy to learn that and to to teach themselves I think it's with the me too movement there's a there's a similar sort of thing like you say you don't necessarily have to stand up and shout your name and say yeah I'm going through this but just the idea that now people are saying oh this does happen people do feel this way it's all right I'm not alone anymore and that's the, that's the most important thing I think
2: and um, you've written about going to therapy before as well was that something that you Just used when you were slightly older or was that something that's been a sort of on and off thing maybe
0: yeah no i I, the first time i went to therapy was two or three years ago and that was because i had a i had a bad experience and just basically came to a point where i said you know I've, i've i've got to find a way out of this reality that i've created for myself otherwise i'm never going to be able to do anything again um i put off going to therapy i didn't feel like it was an important thing i felt like i've got my mental health it was almost self-defining like if i get better will i still be creative it's like the whole um going on uh antidepressants and stuff my am i, I going to change fundamentally as a human yeah. being all that and then the step of of sort of going to someone and say look i don't know what's wrong with me can you just have a look and see it it it's like a a watershed moment i it's just the weight coming off you for me. And I did find it quite useful. I haven't, I haven't been for a while. Um, Cause I, I did a course of therapy and then left it, but it has, it has removed a huge chunk of the negative energy that I carry around with me. And I, I would like to see it being made available to more people, sort of proper, thorough mental health care and therapy.
2: And I read something about uh, EMDR. for. Yeah for people who don't know can you explain what that is and, and how it works
0: yeah i kind of will i just i wanted to say it's it's quite a complicated process but it is actually really fascinating if you're a nerd so you might want to give it a google but the general the i'll give you a the picture i went into this room with this this therapist guy and they put a, a buzzer in each of your hand and then they ask you to think about something traumatic that's happened to you and it's you I've, I've never felt so foolish in my life there's this guy sat there and he said right think about the thing that upsets you most in the world and i'm holding these two little paddles and they're buzzing intermittently sort of every 10 seconds one in each hand and what it does is it tries to get you to get your brain to reprocess the trauma that you experienced um using the buzzers to challenge your brain waves i'm explaining this really badly but
2: it, i'm following so far
0: yeah well there are buzzers and trauma in it and the thing was with it that i was very skeptical because it all felt a bit sort of david ike you know all all that business and I, I wasn't too sure about it but he asked me to think about a specific incident so i eventually picked one and i cried for about an hour you know when you just wail yeah and when i came when i came out there (laughs) i I came out my face was all puffy and i fell asleep about an hour after i got home and slept for 15 hours and the following morning i felt so much better but the, the weird thing is these flashbacks that i had in my head to specific traumas i no longer have them these specific things that we discussed and i thought of and he sort of rewired me through this electronic buzzer thing i i don't default to those flashbacks anymore it's it's incredibly effective but
2: is is that your is that your only experience of therapy or is that one of one of different types that you've you've encountered or was it you'd heard about emdr and thought that sounds like something i'd want to try or how did that kind of come about
0: The thing was, I didn't really have much of an idea where to start when it came to choosing a therapist. And I also think that that's a bit problematic for people as well, because if you Google it, there are so many long words and different things. And, you know, you can come to us if you've got bipolar or if you've got PTSD. And I don't really know what I had. I still struggle to say, you know, I am somebody who suffers with mental health problems because I don't know, maybe it's a generation that I was brought up in, but it just feels like you're going all all artistic. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, you know, leave me alone. I need to go and think. And...
2: (sighs) A a tweet that I found of yours from from back in May where you wrote about uh, not not looking away from mental health problems because they thrive in the darkness and emphasising the importance of asking people if they're okay. Do you think the reason that people maybe don't ask questions is because they're afraid of what the answers might be?
0: And I think I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. And even as someone with mental health problems, I do. I, it is scary, you know. You if you say to someone, "What's what's wrong? Can I help? Do you want to talk to me about it?" I mean, I don't know how to help them specifically. What if they say something to me that and I can't help, and I've put myself in that position of offering help, and now I can't help them? I mean, yeah, I, I do tend to overthink things, you know. Yeah. It's very, you don't want to be put in that position. You don't want somebody to, to sort of say, listen, I'm having a really bad time. Can you help me? And not have anything to come back at them with. And you just, that just multiplies when you're talking about self-harm and, you know, suicidal thoughts. You don't want, how, how are you meant to handle that? There's no, there's nothing visible to put bandage on, as people say, you know. And it. I think it is scary. So I don't blame people. But by the same token i think it's really important that we make an effort to try and inform ourselves if people we love are suffering from mental health problems because that's easy and means so much to the person who's suffering
2: i heard someone say something once which was about um if somebody if you ask somebody if they're okay and they say no and then you ask them why and they whatever it is that they're they're describing to you sounds it's complicated, upsetting. And so often people aren't looking for you to solve it or to answer or anything at all, other than they just need to express it. So all you need to do is listen. And like, that's basically it. And as long as you do that, you've done what you were setting out to do, which was to help. And that's, 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 that's literally it. So I often wonder if, if people kind of, if that was made clearer, maybe, or if that was a thing that people kind of understood a bit better, and it's not so much about oh god if I ask now and then I don't know what the answer is then what am I going to do next? Maybe that would help with that discourse.
0: I, I yeah, I, I really think it would, and you're absolutely right. If if you can offload on someone, if you just say, look, I'm really struggling, this is happening, this is happening, like we discussed earlier on, it's you do feel the load is lifted a little bit, and then the other person can be more aware around you. It's it's as you say, it's just. With mental health awareness campaigns, it's very, very difficult because there are so many messages that need to be sent out and so many things for people to understand, and they're all quite simple, but you can't, you can't bomb people with information because they only take in as much as they can. I I, I think continuing to talk about it like this is, is the most effective way of, of making feel, people feel a bit more comfortable.
2: And you said, you were talking before Kelly about your, about the, about your book
0: yeah
2: yeah could you talk us through what the book is about first of all
0: yeah i mean as i said previously i i felt at one point that i just wanted to get rid of it and put everything down on paper and just see almost as well if there was any humor in it because it's always quite difficult to talk about mental health and everyone feels quite uncomfortable but really really funny things happen sometimes and you find yourself in situations due to your mental health you know like whether you're hiding in a toilet because you're scared to go into a meeting or do you uh-huh. know ridiculous like that yeah. you're thinking what am I doing and it happened with me so many different times I thought okay I'm just going to put all of this down and see what happens so it's basically about a young woman who works in a record shop is very much in love with music but she's also living with serious mental health problems she hasn't really got anyone to talk to and her relationship with her best friend who she always confided in is falling apart. And it's, I guess it's about accepting yourself, accepting your capabilities, accepting that you're never going to be perfect, but you're still okay. You know, it's all right to be you. And if you hurt people accidentally because you're ill, you can make it up to them and you can apologize and, it's it's a very difficult path to navigate. I wanted to make it a bit more visible to people who haven't experienced it, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. How did you find the process of writing it? Oh,
0: um, <laughs> yeah. It was like it felt like ploughing a field, quite honestly, because I wanted it to be as authentic as possible, but that also meant putting myself back in that headspace of where I was at the time, and that was quite that was quite dark. So it took me a couple of months after I'd done it to sort of cleanse myself of it. But I'm really, really glad I did it because putting as much into it as I did, it's it's quite confronting in places. It's It has got a scene of self-harm in it, but it's also got the build-up to how that happens and the thought process to how that happens and how you end up in a space that to most people is so distant they can't even see it i i just i got that done and that was what i was what i was pleased about after I'd finished it i think yeah
2: and what's the have you what sort of feedback have you had from it from
0: i've had rather i've i've had really really astonishing feedback some some people have contacted me privately to say that they've read it and they some people have said that, that they have relatives who self-harm and they found it really useful. Um, I spoke to a couple of people who I knew at the time, actually, um, who knew me when I was like that, if, if that makes sense. And they've read it yeah. and said some incredibly touching things about it. And it, it it should serve. I mean, it served for me to learn that You shouldn't necessarily put too much faith in your own self-image. You know, and if you spend a lot of time, sort of, oh, what do they think of me? Because you've got no idea what people think of you and you can make stuff up in your head. And And that's what happened to me a lot of the time. I felt paranoid and, you know, well, so-and-so doesn't like me or I'm doing a terrible job. or. And other people have got their own shit to deal with. You know, they're not particularly obsessing about what you're doing or what you're thinking. And that taught me a big lesson, you know, the stuff that I've thought of, like, I wish I hadn't said that, I wish I hadn't done that. And it wasn't necessarily something that stuck out with them or, you know, we've had a bit of a laugh about it since, which is is (laughs) amazing.
3: (laughs) Was you concerned at all, Kelly, uh, letting people read the book? Was you quite self-conscious about any of it at all?
0: I think I was fully expecting to feel self-conscious about it, but I don't. I don't I don't know whether that is because that that is my experience there's there's nothing else I can say if, if if you don't like it if it's not your thing well I can't do anything about that and I think it's given me a huge boost of self-confidence as well because I I did it I stand by it you know that that was my experience and and it has helped to have people come to me and say, yeah, I read it and it, it meant something to me. But more importantly, just getting it out of my system and it being it, it's a thing now. It's not just something that happened to me. And I don't think and occasionally I remember it and think, oh, you know, that happened. No, it's, it's actually an entity on its own now. And if it if it can just speak to somebody and make them feel a little bit better or, or make them laugh when they're feeling rubbish, then then that. That's everything for me. It was worth every single moment of blood, sweat and tears.
3: Yeah, it sounds almost liberating once it's out there and you've you've shared the story. We've had that with a few people who've told us their stories and when they've had it on the podcast, have almost been like therapy for them just getting it off the chest. So I imagine for you that writing process almost probably did a similar thing.
0: Yeah, it was... I spent two or three weeks after... I'd written it sort of feeling thrilled it was it was that simple as like I'd unpicked it all put it in a box closed the lid and put it away and it never ceases to amaze me how the human brain works how you know all this stuff can just spend years going around in your head and then if you actually take action with it even just in your head you sort of say right you're going over there now it, it actually works, which is which is why I'm so I bang on all the time about people talking about it and, you know, writing and sharing their experiences because it's 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 wonderful. It is liberating. That's a great word to use because you, you can't hide anymore. It's there. You know, I can do a lot worse to myself than anyone else could ever do to me. And, I, and there it is. So, you know, have at it. That's my attitude. If, if you've got something to say about it, great.
3: Yeah, definitely. It almost reminds me of that. I don't know if you've seen the film Eight Mile, but at the end, where really he just basically says everything that's wrong about himself, and then says to the to the fellow, "Come on, tell me something I don't know," and you just can't say anything. It's almost got that feeling about it. Um, and yeah. people can, can't use something against you that you that you're proud of and you 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 wear every day.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's the thing. It's it's a, it's a great analogy because what have you got? You know, this this is me. And I, I just can't believe it. the only thing that I regret about it is that I didn't do it before. But then I don't think I would have had the distance I needed to turn it into something that's actually relatable and readable. So it kind of worked out.
3: And and just sort of moving that on to, to football, how would you describe your relationship with football, Kelly?
0: Well, I was thinking about this early, earlier on, obviously. And um, and the best that I could come up with is that, that I'm obsessed with it like you're obsessed with a really bad partner and you you they behave appallingly and you spend your life thinking what am I doing and yet you go back to them every single time that is that is literally how I feel about football
3: <laughs> yeah that, that 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 rings true that can, that's a great way of describing it and you, you mentioned earlier that you didn't actually start watching football to I think well properly till you're around about 18 and your family weren't huge football fans so do you think that allowed you to see football for what it is, without sort of a tribalistic, rose-tinted glasses, like someone who may be brought up in a, a staunch football household uh, with sort of commitments to just one team and one area maybe has?
0: Yeah, I, I really do. And it's something that I enjoyed a great deal while I was working for the Football Ramble, because while it's great to have your, your team and you follow them and you watch all their games, I, I can sort of stand above that and have a little level of critique at at all all of the games that I watch and I can be but I mean I love the passion that you know I love people going apeshit about their team and being completely unreasonable I've written a few times you know how about going to go to football it's like you you get to be a child for an hour and a half and be completely unreasonable and shout at the ref and not behave yourself and i just feel that that's some that's what we what we do and what we should carry on doing
3: in a blog you wrote in may of this year i think you mentioned football isn't traditionally viewed as a, a vital mental health resource first of all why do you think that is
0: well i think we touched on it earlier on i think football fans are uniquely unsympathetic we we don't exactly endear ourselves to the public at large. The only time they ever see us is when we're shouting or drunk or falling down or fighting in the stands in France or, or whatever it is. It's just got a, this really negative um, reputation. There's also the whole all the money in it and the Premier League. Nobody cares about the lower leagues. And I just think, you know, you ask the average person on the street who's not a football fan, I. You know what? Do you, what do you think that the footballs stop? Do you think it's bad for football fans? Literally, most people will just go. I, I really don't care. I don't care how football fans feel about anything. All I ever hear about is is football fans. So, I think it's a very quiet resource, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the people within it use it as a resource, but I don't necessarily know whether we're all conscious that we use it as such, because. I've been using it as such all my life. And the only time, I, the first time I actually thought about it was during lockdown when it stopped. And I thought, yeah. well, what am I going to do with my week now? You know, like, I don't know how, I don't know if you, your season ticket holder or whatever, but as we said earlier on, said earlier on, that's your, your Saturdays and your, your midweek fixtures sorted. So you've got to do your travel. You know, you've got to fit your work. You've got to take your holiday. You meet your people down there. You meet the away fan, you, you know, you, you do your thing everyone has their unique thing you put your shirt on or or your hat or whatever Um, um what do you do when you don't have that all of a sudden you're kicking around the house on a Saturday there's no five life sport on you know there's no football results at quarter to five what what is happening how how do we even begin to cope with that because I don't know about you but ever since I got into football my entire life has been predicated on the fixture schedule
3: we we did a show and we discussed about whether footballers should be seen as role models and the fact of the matter is they've got such a big audience they can't not be seen to be I suppose at times but the attitudes are changing now and I think positively and we have got to shine football in a in a good light when we can because it does get so much negative press as you as you've touched on and not just the players the fans as well so do you have sort of any insight in how we go about changing those attitudes?
0: I I think the most important thing we can continue doing is opening up and speaking about it. You know, I've seen, you mentioned that you've had Neville Southall on. um, uh, He's done some great work um, amplifying mental health issues as as well as a lot of other things. He's, he's been an incredible advocate for people. I think people are now writing um, a lot more about suffering from mental health. I think footballers, are starting to speak about it and i genuinely think i as far as you were saying about a coherent message i think that's part of the problem like football really does suffer from a lack of coherency you know a proper model we could as i said before we can't even deal with a coherent response to racism in our football game and mental health is so much more scattered and complicated and bits here and bits there but all of these things can be dealt with and amplified more by people in the media and I think that's what we should continue doing just keep saying it's okay to feel a certain way if you need to speak to somebody go and have a chat you know because people will that's what we do you know if we see somebody we admire I mean You'd never ask a football for anything, like, to comment on anything important 10 years ago. But look at Raheem Sterling now. You know, even Robbie Savage was on the um, the, uh, press conference not long ago. And I know he's a divisive figure, but his project about getting football back into communities and for kids and everything, for their mental health and for their physical health, that's great work he's doing. And, you know, we can keep going we can keep amplifying things like that and it will change how people feel i think over the long term
3: yeah and and do you think men and in particular many of football fans still struggle with the stigma of talking openly about their emotions
0: i think the trouble with with football is it's traditionally very masculine you know you know with the best will in the world we a few years ago we were still fighting about whether it was okay to wear gloves on the pitch. You know, we still are. There's this sense that if you wear gloves on the pitch, you're a bit, you know, continental. Or, do you get what I mean? There's this this sort of very yeah. sense of, and I don't think it's helpful, and I don't think it encourages people to to talk about you know come out in the dressing room and say look i'm i'm really struggling with this but but by the same token players now are a lot more media savvy they've got social media they they're a lot more clued in to what's happening they can actually communicate directly with people rather than having to use the press as a medium and i think that's made a huge difference because they can speak from the heart they don't have to to go through this barrage of of expectation that's foisted on them by particularly the tabloid press about being a tough lad I, d- I don't think it's relevant anymore to be honest
3: the platforms only we getting bigger so when you see things
0: in, in social
3: media like marcus rashford's doing as i say the, there's no pressure on him to do that there's no it's not like club pr you can tell he's yeah. he genuinely wants to do it and i think that that's important and it, it should be celebrated and same with Sterling, and I think Harry Kane's done quite a bit as well. And I actually have praised Gareth Southgate quite a lot on this podcast because I think he's done really well at creating an environment where it's not so much press versus England and also allowed his players to, to express themselves, where in the past they probably would have been told not to. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for, for this current crop of England players who are, who are excellent role models, in my opinion.
0: Yeah I, I absolutely agree I think um I, I think Southgate is a breath of fresh air as far as the England side is concerned and I it might be a cliche but this is the first England side that I've ever really liked that I've ever really felt yes come on you know because they they're not sort of the Sven generation where you felt so distant from them you know you you actually see these guys and they actually want to win and they're trying and it's it's good to be in the you know part of the england setup now and i get the feeling it hasn't been like that for a while
3: yeah absolutely i i always think a bit my dad when i think of england because he's one of them football fans that just likes to watch football although i'm a stone's tramley fan he he likes any merseyside club to do well and just watch it but he watches all of england's games and he puts flags up when it's the World Cup and those things. And he's just been let down, he feels, for like 30, 40 years. Nice. Uh, and now he's finally sort of coming around because every year there's a tournament. So he's always like, oh, the Germans will knock us out. He's just that way ingrained now. And um, I saw him at the last World Cup with a smile on his face and I thought, yeah, this is an England team you can get behind. I
0: Yeah, I wrote a piece. I, wrote, I think it was, it was back then. I wrote a piece for the New Statesman. I can't remember the detail of it, but... It, I think we were doing really well. I think we got through, got past the quarters, and we were in that gap between the quarters and the semis. And it, I started to panic because I thought, this is brilliant. We we might actually win this. Because we do that every year, obviously, when we're at a tournament. But it actually felt like we might. And I pitched a piece basically saying, okay, we might win the World Cup. What what then? You know, we're <laughs> friendly, disappointed with the England side we've got all these routines worked out we know what to do we know that we need to slag somebody off that we need to put somebody dressed as a vegetable on the newspaper (laughs) all of this stuff we have no frame of reference for winning a tournament and I worry that it would set the fans off I think we'd we'd all just I don't know what would happen
3: if we would have won that world cup it would have took coronavirus now to stop that party I think the I, I don't think we would have gone
0: back to work. Yeah, no, I think the <laughs> economy would have collapsed, so coronavirus wouldn't have been an issue because it would have just—we'd have demanded the entire team be knighted and put in charge of something. We've embarrassed ourselves. <laughs> That's what worries me. Just
3: um jump back to the to the blog. Mental illness is, is non discriminatory. Are you? Um, how dangerous is the de- there's a desire to compare and rate suffering that we see so often, particularly on social media?
0: I, I think it's incredibly unhelpful. You know, we – I feel there is – the, by the very nature of social media, we get the opportunity to comment on – other people's opinions and thoughts and ideas in real time without actually considering them or thinking of the humanity behind and it's very easy to say oh well how can you be depressed but Raheem Sterling again um, but he's quite a sort of totemic figure because he's been through such a lot I remember I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was a while ago when he was still playing for Liverpool. And he, um, the news came out that he was feeling tired and might be rested for one of the games. And everyone went mad. You know, how can you be tired when you're on however much a week? You're 19 years old. You can't be tired. You're dead faint, blah, blah, blah. And I just think that it's redundant. Of course he can be tired. You know, you don't get rejuvenated by eating a £10 no, you know, he's an athlete, he runs, he's obviously got some issues. He was, he was having issues at the time. And I just think we have this tendency to come down on these things still with a sledgehammer when actually I'd I'd like to see us become more nurturing, but I think it is, it's toxic across the board. I don't think it's just in football, this habit of trying to compare trying to sort of, you know, using relativism, like my experience is worse than yours or how can you be this because you've got that. I I think we just have to keep talking about it and keep using facts about people and information about how people cope and what we do and just try and drown the noise a bit because I think that's the only way that we're going to get anywhere because these people aren't going to stop bickering and using the internet as a platform to be grim to other people. We have to learn how to sort of rise above it and focus on positivity.
3: Yeah, and and that Raheem Sterling, um, that period in his life, I'm pretty sure he was 17 years old at the time.
0: I think. I um, think. And,
3: yeah. and and you think about it and you think if that was somebody's child or it was in another job. You would you you'd be mad that anybody would treat your son or somebody you knew that way, and because he's a footballer, it's almost. That whole attitude of just get on with it, stiff up a lip, and you think he's still seventeen. He probably might not have been physically tired. He-, he could have been emotionally and mentally drained by the huge changes that have gone from being a schoolboy to suddenly being on the front of newspapers and playing in front of fifty thousand people.
0: You wonder, don't you, how how we miss this incredibly obvious stuff? You know, it's seventeen. Like, I could barely dress myself when I was seventeen. <laughs> having to put up with you know being on the front page of the papers having his lifestyle choices criticized it is it, it's, it's quite something I, I do think there's a lot to be said for sort of trying to drown out that really negative noise that comes from certain areas I, I almost
3: wonder what the solution is or if there is one because the most powerful sort of platform is social media but it can also be the darkest as well and it's but as you said it's trying to filter out the noise and, and not focus on the negatives but I suppose when it's you and people commenting on you or somebody you know it is impossible to to ignore isn't it at times and that's the, the danger of it.
0: It really it really appeals to the baser instinct in all of us I think to just like you read something like that and you just sometimes you just want to let rip at them, don't you? And just tell them what you actually think and but it it's not the platform. You know, social media isn't the platform for having these big conversations about things that we really, really need to sort out. But by the same token, it's it is somewhere where we can pull ideas. So I get I guess we're just gonna have to keep moving forward and trying to yeah, spread this positive message, it all sounds it sounds terrible, you know, it all sounds a bit new age and everything, but I think we need a bit of positivity at the moment, I think if people could just start being nice to each other and just take a moment, instead of, I mean, I'm guilty of it, you know, if there's been a pundit on or something, I'll, I'll write something, you know, that I consider to be witty about them, and yeah, I mean, we all laugh about it, but if somebody was constantly chipping at me like that while I was trying to do my job, I'd I wouldn't be able to perform. And I think that goes across the board. I couldn't perform if somebody was going on about how awful my hair looked or how rubbish I was or something like that when I'm trying to concentrate. And I don't really think we should expect people to do that just because they play football or they talk about football.
2: Welcome back. Excellent. You're still listening to Man Marking. I've still got Ryan and Anthony. I'm going to keep calling you Anthony for the duration of this, by the way, Excellent. Um, with, with me today. So Kelly's interview, one of the things that was obviously was our theme was around writing, around articulating thoughts. So what we thought would be a nice little discussion to have post-interview would be around different books that we've read, maybe have had an emotional impact on us. And Ryan, I'm going to come to you first, mate. So the question I would ask you is, I want to know a book that you've read that's had an emotional impact on your life.
3: Yeah, so it was a difficult one, really. I I, I thought of a few, um, but I wanted to go with one that I'm actually reading at the moment, so I must admit I haven't finished it, but it, it has probably had the biggest impact on me recently. And It's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which I think I mentioned when we spoke to Lance, um, and it, it talks a lot about intuition and, and how we make decisions in the different parts of the brain that that work for, di- for different decision-making, so is it... Uh, a very quick decision that you make without really thinking is it a more controlled deeper uh, measurement of thought and there's a there's a lot in there that talks about how we almost defend our actions when we're wrong uh, because it's almost like an instinctive thing that we've developed over evolution almost to protect ourselves but it talks about how how you can maybe understand when you're doing that and probably i probably do it quite a lot because i'm i quite like to talk and i quite like to get involved in communications and And debates and things but often i think it's very healthy to just take a deep breath and try and understand somebody's thought process and where they may be coming from and why you don't agree and maybe not focus so much on what you disagree on but the elements that you probably do agree on and because with twitter and um, we talked about social media a lot it's dead easy to just get into useless debates with people Um, and i think we're almost losing the art of conversation quite a lot so in terms of that, for personal development for me, I think personally it's helped me do the podcast, it's helped me speak to people, and uh, I'm just really enjoying it so far. And as I say, I haven't finished it yet, but what I've read so far, I think, has helped me understand sometimes why you make decisions that when you look back on further down the line, you think, why was I even doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So what what was that book called, Ryan? It's called Thinking Fast and Slow um, by Daniel Carmen. He actually won a Nobel Prize. Um, as well um but i think it was based on this book so you can find a lot of him on on youtube and um, he's got a few other books out as well and I'd, I'd honestly recommend
2: it to anybody it's really really good and and same question to you a book that's had an emotional impact on your life
1: uh yeah so mine is um is uh well it was written by my cousin actually um so it's a bit of a, a bit of a strange one. i'm not trying to like bump up any sales here or anything but it did have a <laughs> have a bit of a, a profound effect on me uh it's called an unexpected journey and it's by ben thexton uh it goes into um uh, his battles with uh, a head injury uh on saturday afternoon in, in 2012 uh his life kind of changed forever as he as he was in a road traffic accident uh, put him in a a uh, life-threatening situation. He had to be induced into a coma, and it, you know it goes into talking about what it was like in, in that situation. You know, he, he vividly remembers these, you know, images that were kind of around him at the time, and and it is like a, a really interesting look. So it, it covers like a, a wide range of uh, topics. We've got the obviously the the head injuries. And the, and the kind of coma issues as well, and then coming out from that and having to adapt to to regular life and having to get better, and and how he he struggled and and how he had to open up and and kind of have come through that as well, um, and, and what he's doing now, uh, which is you know promoting his his journey and his story to other people who've had similar injuries and similar experiences. It's a it was a book that I, I kind of. Reads last year i was going through a, a kind of a high period of anxiety and and, and depression for a, for around about three or four weeks i was i was off work i was speaking to a, a therapist and and she recommended to to read uh lived experience books uh whether that be you know um like this or or, or any others and and a common theme that came up was was people in comas and and having to understand the, the things that go on within that that situation it was uh as a obviously as a family member you know he, obviously my cousin he obviously spoke when we, were, when we were younger but you don't really move in the same circles anymore so obviously i knew the story but i didn't know the ins and outs and to to get behind that without going through the the kind of you know invading people's personal space was was really easy and i think that's kind of why books and 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 articles are so good is that it does open that up and it it doesn't need anyone to go and pry and go and ask tough questions. It it just allows that person just to open up so easily and, and and get it all out there and explain it in quite black and white. You know, this is what's happened. This, what's gone on. And I think that's why these books and these articles around topics like this are are so good. And it's probably, you know, it it helps two people. It helps the, the person who's wrote it and it helps the person is reading it as
2: well so it's kind of a win-win Yeah absolutely and the name of the book and the, and the author mate
1: Yeah it's An Unexpected Journey and it's by Ben Thexton it's available in, in all good bookstores and on Amazon as well
2: I suppose on that I think that's a really good point that you make there and you've both kind of picked ones that are almost in a sense kind of educational in a way that, that sort of teach you something, something about life and about how you interact with it we obviously mentioned the fact that this has kind of come about from from kelly's writing and and she wrote an article about self harm which was which was really interesting that came back up onto our onto our timeline again recently so we'll we'll post a link to that but i think just on that as you say that lived experience thing that was such an interesting article that kelly wrote because i think self-harm which is something that comes up in the interviews a really misunderstood thing And, and i think kelly kind of articulates it really well um and as as you've as we've mentioned, Kelly's book, The Fear, is available. That's available on, on Amazon as well, and we'll post a link to that because, yeah, everything that Kelly writes is absolutely excellent, so it's well worth check, checking out. Both went for non-fiction books, so I'm going to go for a fiction. I've gone for Catcher in the Rye, which I actually read when I was 21, I think. Um, and I just, I just loved it. I think for anyone who's read it, probably read it in their teenage years. Uh, I came about it a little bit later, but it just... Um, yeah, it was just something that kind of spoke to me. I just really understood it, and it's it's it stayed with me for a for a long time. I've actually got a catcher in the rye tattoo, which is on my back. Um, so yeah, catcher in the rye. I don't feel like I need to tell you where to buy it because it's catcher in the rye. It'd be like me telling you where to buy the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Be a little bit pointless. So Kelly mentioned in her, in her interview about a uh, uh, sort of alternative therapy that she went to that, that that was useful for her. I think there are. You know, it's not really as we've said before, we're not experts. So we're not going to sit here and tell you about all the different types of therapy and, and how they can help you. But what we will do is post some links on our Twitter feed so that you can sort of check some of them out. I mean, we did an interview with, uh, with Rob Watton from Sky Sports, which will be coming out soon, which he mentioned something called scuba therapy, which I think he kind of, it, it, it come up with himself as that's something that he found really useful. So we'll post some links for that sort of stuff on there because, you know, therapy is a difficult one, really. It's, you know, what's the difficulty is finding the right therapist the right type of therapy for you and it's worth knowing that there are lots of different types of therapy out there lots of different interesting things Mm -hmm. that you can kind of get involved with so we'll post some links to some interesting stuff online as well so that you can have a little read through that um ryan and anthony thank you very much for (laughs) for joining us today uh it's been it's been emotional as per usual it's been lovely We uh, started the episode by slagging off some people's favourite days in the fixture list. And uh, I don't even feel guilty about it. Get a better derby, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so you can find us on Twitter uh, at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads. And you can find us on all of the usual podcast places. We've also got a YouTube channel and we've got a blog as well on WordPress, which has got uh, uh, some articles from Kelly that we'll uh, that we'll send some links out to as well. So thank you very much for listening. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. What is your favourite football cliche? Uh,
0: good feet for a big man.
2: Yeah. Somebody said that. <laughs> Someone said that
0: recently. It just like, it drives me potty. I oh, I don't know. I don't know. If, if that's happened, you're playing football match bingo, aren't you?
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> I know for a fact I've definitely said that at some point in my life as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a favourite football book?
0: Oh. Uh, I'll tell you um, one I've read that... I came absolutely um, obsessed with for a while, and that was uh, Fear and Loathing in La Liga by Sid Lowe. It's it's got a real it, the, the sort of historical context and the amount of information and he's he's got in there about about sort of the the different regimes and and Real's connection to um, Franco and everything. It's just there's so much depth. It reads like a, a beautiful. book. Beautiful manuscript. It's lovely. I, I would highly recommend it.
2: If the the football ramble lads competed in a Royal Rumble, what order are they coming out, top to bottom? Oh
0: God, Pete will win because <laughs> I think he's probably the one that operates best in a leotard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I
3: think
0: probably do you know Marcus would probably come second. Because he's a feisty one. He comes across he's a lovely guy, you know. But I've seen him. <laughs> he's got the moves. Uh, who comes? You see, I'm going to have to put Luke third because it wouldn't be fair to put him fourth. And oh, I really. Jim
2: Campbell's that, not winning it. He's not getting anywhere near it, is
0: he? All the love in the world. Jim isn't isn't a man you want with you in a combat situation.
2: No.
0: I just. I, he's he's a lover, not a fighter, I'm sure. So, <laughs> Luke, he can go in number three as long as he wears a leotard.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm suddenly against the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which football co-commentator makes you want to meet the television?
0: Glenn Hoddle.
2: Ooh. Do you know what? I actually quite like Glenn. I, I... He's, I, do get why, I do get why he irritates people, though.
0: <laughs> I've got nothing against the bloke, and he was obviously a great player. I but I find... Yeah, he's the one that I find myself shouting at more often than not. The one that... Oh, oh, come on, Glenn. Do
2: you know what I think I like about him? He's... Despite the fact that he was an absolutely unbelievable player and was... You know, he had a, a, a decent career as a manager. He... Still sounds like a fella that stood behind you at the pub, and you're going, "Oh, shut up, mate!" Oh, that's Smith for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is that? I, <laughs> I, I kind of like that. I kind of it makes it reassuring to think, yeah, even they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, right. yeah, Do
0: you know? You've shown me a new side of Glenn that I haven't. do <laughs> yeah. that go <laughs> when the football comes back and see if see if it works. I I'm, must I'm the... listen to him in
2: that context.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I could never get on board with David Pleat's voice. I don't know why. Ah,
2: I David Pleet, who says, good evening, everyone. Uh,
0: That's yeah. He also is – you've you've got to love David Pleat, because he takes such a long run-up to bad <laughs> <hard> pronunciation. <laughs> everyone else has been practising for six months. He takes a huge run-up and still fails hilariously every time. <laughs> it's almost like he practises –
2: I like the, the ones who get it wrong and then they hear the commentator say it correctly, but oh. they just persist with saying it wrong. I just I just think that's, I, I just love it. I just think they've gone, yeah, well, this is how I'm saying it.
0: You so, style it, don't you? you yeah. just like, I'm having this.
3: Yeah, it's like when someone says Phil Yagielka or
2: something, oh. like, and you're like, yeah. what's
0: going on here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a shudder just gone down my spine. I. I
2: <laughs> that's the worst one, I think, the Yagielka one.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: never, oh. Like never been his name, and, and it's like you wouldn't be like, "Oh, I'm going to go and drive home in my Jaguar." What <laughs> <laughs> didn't happen? <laughs>
0: perhaps we should change that
2: immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I um, I uh, there was that Mick McCarthy one, wasn't there? When he was doing the World Cup, and he was going, "Yeah, i I'm, 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 I'm the one playing left back. I can't pronounce his name, so I'm just going to call him left back." <laughs>
0: yeah. be big mick energy you know you, you can't fault big mick
2: yeah he, he both loves it and hates it at the same time, at the same <laughs> time. <laughs> it's really bizarre to listen to but somehow it works yeah he's he's, he's like begrudgingly He's like you say like he's been married to football for 50 years he's like oh i may as well just stay with you now. <laughs> <Get home
0: now. laughs> know it i'm comfortable here yeah I- Everything, but at least I know it. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: Liverpool fans have been here in the past singing about a team of Carragher's and United about a team of Cantonars. If you had to have a one to eleven of one player, who would it be?
0: Javier Mascherano.
2: Oh, that's a good shout. Actually, nil uh, nil every week. Yeah, it would,
0: was, <laughs> wouldn't it? <You laughs> about a man here who tore his anus whilst he was playing for Argentina. You. <laughs> He looked that up if you do, if you're not familiar with it, but he actually taught that. And he will give everything in every position for any team.
3: To be honest, I've seen Danny do that Saturday, so was <laughs> not doing that. <it>
2: <laughs> I, 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 I certainly wouldn't have me one to eleven. <laughs> We'd have the lowest miles covered by any team of all time. Since Octa began. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what would your um, movement map look like? What would your heat map?
2: It would it would just be to be honest with you, there would be part of it would be over by the dugout remonstrating <laughs> with the manager. Part of it would be wherever the referee is remonstrating with him, and the other one would be doing overhead kicks on the edge of the box. That's pretty much what I do for about 90 minutes every week.
0: <laughs> Give me a chat next time you're playing five a side, yeah. I'll come and have a watch. <laughs> and, brilliant. <laughs> to be honest,
3: he's he's an excellent footballer, Kelly, but he's just not going to work for the team. But if you That's give him a chance, he's going to swat it. So it depends what you're after and the fans are
2: after. If you want work, rate, right then.
0: Just stick him on the left wing, yeah?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. As long as get... your fullback doesn't mind getting absolutely no cover whatsoever. <laughs> if you could have been at any football match from history, what would it have been?
0: Oh, the 1999 Champions League final.
2: Davis,
3: un, un, is that the United by Munich?
0: Yeah, I'm afraid it is.
3: They always get
2: a shout out, United. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: do you,
2: know, do you know what though? You can't. It's it's you you've got a hand turn that evening, though, haven't you? Yeah, you're so incredible.
0: Oh, I, I I don't. I'm not a fan. I don't like them. I've got no time for them. But I nearly went through the roof. <laughs> it was just yeah. So that one, I'd love to have been at that. What happened
2: to it's towards Michael. It's comforted right by you're
3: cleared, Giggs with a shot, cherry up
2: win a European Cup final, more dramatically than this.
0: Champions of Europe, champions of England, winners of the FA Cup,
2: everything
3: there.